time you're choosing to listen to this. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Myth Take. We haven't forgotten you. I am Allison Innes. I am Darren Sundstrom. And we are back to continue our mythological tour of the solar system. That's right, episode six. We would make terrible <coughs> tour guides in real life. No, I think we'd make great tour guides. We just left all our listeners on Boiling Hot Mercury oh. for two weeks while we got distracted with real life things. Oh, that's true. Well, <laughs> That, you know, um, these sort of things happen, but from what I read, the surface of Venus is none too nice either. True, mm. true. It's not like, Ven- well, yeah, it's, it's not like it's your go-to destination. No. So, we are going to visit Venus tonight, or today, or whenever you are listening to this, mm-hmm. um, and then and then we're going to skip over Earth. We're going to save Earth for the end, because Earth is kind of boring, really, yep. in some ways. <laughs> we all know what it's like here. So, uh, we're going to skip to Mars in our next Episode. Yeah, we'll come back yeah. to Gaia. Gaia and Cellini, right? uh, maybe as well. For yeah, I, I would like to do yeah. the moon as a separate, yeah. you know, as a separate um, podcast. <clears throat> Quite obscure. Yeah, so Venus. <clears throat> All right. Never so, heard of her. <laughs> we're, we're a little spoiled for choice in terms of literature, but as per usual, we'll start with some. Um, science, what was it you called it? Pseudo-scientific? I call it pseudo-scientific techno-babble. Okay. Yeah. All right. And again, this is all taken from NASA, so... Mm-hmm. Oh, it, um, all right. Yeah, so it all has right. some... It's not pseudo-scientific, though. Yeah. So... For now. Venus is the closest neighbor to the planet Earth. It's one of the brightest... Um, it is the second brightest object in our sky, second only to the moon. Yes. Um, so the ancients, of course, were well familiar with the planet. Mm-hmm. They actually... Um, I was reading in Pliny, the elder, <coughs> the oh, yeah. day, that they actually had uh, two different names for Venus. When it appeared in the morning, it was a star called Lucifer, and uh-huh. when it appeared in the evening... It was a star called Vesper. Oh, I mean, wow. they knew it was the same planet, but mm-hmm. the um, they had different names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the surface of Venus itself is hidden beneath poisonous gl- ga- clouds of gases like carbon dioxide and mm. sulfuric acid and hurricane wind. So basically, it's like Earth gone greenhouse. <laughs> yeah, super greenhouse um, effect. Yeah, and uh, the clouds are probably what makes it so uh, so bright to us. Um, in combination with its with its proximity, so it's been a mysterious uh, planet for science to understand, just because we haven't been able to until relatively recent times um, kind of know what what is on there. Yeah, we had to use radar to kind of see through the clouds. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and Nats even said there's trace water on on Venus. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't so expect that at those temperatures. No. So uh, no moons, no rings, nothing fancy, but it is hotter than Mercury. So maybe we want to go back to Mercury Yeah. Um, because of the greenhouse effect. So a daytime surface temperature is 900 degrees Fahrenheit wow. or 482 Celsius. So that's, that's the daytime. That's cooking. And the pressure... Um, very this, thick. Very, very thick. Um, yeah. it, they, it's strong enough that it crushes spacecraft in only a few hours. So it's 90 times... Uh, Earth's gravity. The Earth. That's fascinating. No, this is this is pressure. So this oh. is this is separate from gravi- gravity. This oh, right. is like the atmospheric pressure. Absolutely, atmospheric pressure. Um, so it's the same as if you were a mile and a half underwater. Oh yeah, that's that's not so, good. So yeah, 
Interestingly, um, Venus is what we call, a re- or what they, what scientists call a retrograde planet. It mm-hmm. spins backwards. So the sun that. rises in the west yeah. and sets in the east. And the other mind-boggling aspect of Venus uh-huh. is that the day is longer than the year. So on it's, Venus. it spins so it takes very long, slow. Yes, yeah, so it takes longer to spin on its axis than it takes to complete its orbit around the sun. Now that's cool. That is yeah, pretty cool. That's neat. So um, a year mm-hmm. uh, um, is 225 Earth days. Wow. Okay? Yeah. Um, so that's how long it takes to go around the sun. Right. A day on Venus is 243 Earth days. Wow. So you would be like way older. Can you imagine having birthdays on Venus? Like you would be so old and so young at the same time. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if I would. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that'd be very odd. I heard that as a result of it being one of those terrestrial planets that it's extremely close to Earth in size. Like, its a variation is only about 650 kilometers difference. Yes, and its mass and its its density, its composition, even its gravity are, are quite similar to yeah. Earth. If it wasn't for all that atmospheric pressure, it might be a neat spot to and the visit. Heat. In the heat, yeah. It'd be like that cooking in a, in a greenhouse. Yeah. So, um... On our mugsometer, actually. Yeah, we need a mugsometer. Okay, so eight pounds. Well, I would guess, I'm going to guess pounds, eight pounds. 7.28. So oh, you, see. you would actually lose a little bit of weight. Just a little bit, to, yeah. Um, yeah. Going to uh, Venus. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they, <clears throat> of course, have identified and named features on Venus. Yeah. And as we've talked about about before, those often follow, those often, they almost always follow um, themes. And... Uh, what sort the, of themes? The themes here, amazing earth women. Amazing earth women? Yes, really? not ordinary earth women, but amazing <clears throat> earth women. Oh, wow. Um, dead ones, uh-huh. long dead ones, I uh-huh. believe. Um, there is a canyon named after the goddess Diana. Okay. The, and there are two kind of, they call them large highland areas. So I think they're kind of like, they would be continents if they yeah. were oceans. Yeah. And one of them is Ishtar Terra. Oh, yes. And one of them is Aphrodite Terra. Oh, and yes. Ishtar is a goddess that gets conflated yes. with Aphrodite. And this is kind of one of the cool things with Aphrodite is there's a lot of melding with other goddesses. Yes. Ishtar is an Eastern goddess. Astarte Ishtar. Um, Isis, yeah. yes. And I, um, Isis, the Egyptian goddess, also gets mixed in and melted with Aphrodite at times, too. Hmm. Um <clears throat> Not, not all the Mighty time, Aphrodite. But, some, but sometimes as well. So Aphrodite as a goddess is yeah. very interesting too because she takes many forms and in some ways is a very old, like culturally speaking, is a very yeah, old absolutely. goddess. Well, so that's, you know, we've taken it for granted though. We're talking about Venus and then we say the word Aphrodite and we're taking it yes. for granted. So you, we need to explain yes. that they so are the same. Why don't you go ahead and explain well, that? Well, I think I just did. Okay. The, Romans, <laughs> the Romans call her, this goddess, Venus, right? And the Greeks, in the classical tradition, of course, call her Aphrodite, right? She also has other cult names that she can be recognized with, and there are, like, hundreds of those. Cypress being yeah. a big one. And, and that's one or two that we, we might encounter in our, in our primary um, sources that we've selected for our sort of uh, exposition of some of the um, uh, powers and the timai and honors of this uh, interesting goddess. So you, we, you'll see the odd word like, you know, Cypriot, Cyprus, Cyprus, um, you know, those types of things come up, right? Uh, and they are the same, right? They're just, they're, they're 
cult names, their epithets that describe her quality or characteristic? So Venus slash Aphrodite, it, well, we're going to be looking at Aphrodite. We're looking at Greek sources. Yeah. Um, and we're really spoiled for choice when it comes. It's almost, you, you were saying there's almost too many. There's too much. There's too much mm -hmm. um, to choose from, which <clears throat> kind of makes this a little bit of a mm -hmm. difficult um, week. Mm -hmm. for us literature wise but we've chosen three different passages to look at so not uh, we won't be able to go into as much detail as we might like with all of them yeah. but we'll hopefully give you a good idea of um, kind of who Aphrodite is and what kind of goddess she is so, sure it's like it's kind of like a shotgun blast of a couple of primary sources yeah. and see what sticks yeah. yeah so we're going to have a little look at her origin story from Hesiod's Theogony yeah, that's a good and we're start. also going to have a little snippet of her from one of the Homeric hymns to her right. and those are both really old sources around um, 8 or 9th century uh, before Christ mm -hmm. Before Common Era, and then from um, the 400s, I don't remember. It's, the four, date of this. it's 428 BC. 428 BC. We're going to have um, a little snippet of her, according to Euripides, from his play Hippolytus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. That's the, that's the weird one. There's always sort of like an odd one in, in the mix on occasion. Yeah. Um, and there's also some good speeches uh, by her. Um, she plays a role in the Iliad. Um, and there's some interesting scenes uh, with her and Helen and that kind of thing too. So if you're interested yeah. in more about Aphrodite, that's an, um, that's another good primary source. And I think we at. intentionally picked some of the weirder ones because it kind of because we're weird. It, yeah, <laughs> we're weird, and, and and they're a little bit more esoteric. And, and as a result of that, you can learn a little bit more because sometimes I think you know, especially with a with a goddess like Aphrodite as depicted in the Iliad, for example. Uh, much has already been said about about her, so I don't think we would really be adding uh, too too much to it. Uh, and you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we pick some of these odd, more odd ones. And these are all texts that we've used in first year um, university intro to Greek mythology courses. So Usually, it, they yeah. they are they are accessible. They're not yeah. they're not um, they're not completely obscure. Right. So with the Theogony. Um, the lines we're looking at, and I wrote it down, and now I can't find my paper. Let me see. Um, lines 188, 188 to 206 yeah, is in there. Um, <clears throat> so to kind of set this, do you want to set this up a little bit? Just well, kind of plot-wise, what's why they're talking about Aphrodite here? Well, the Theogony is the story of the birth of the gods, and it starts very quickly with a cosmogony to describe how the cosmos itself was created. Because we need to have a place first and then we have gods right so once the universe is created right uh it is being very quickly populated by divine beings and the birth of aphrodite is is um, described uh, uh very early on in the theogony line 188 uh within the first 200 lines we get we get this this being and uh, at this particular point, the Olympians have not yet been created. There is no Zeus, and there is no Hera, and there is no Hestia, or whatever, right? There is just simply the primal beings, uh, and there are the Titans, uh, the children of Uranus and Gaia. And uh, the birth of, of Aphrodite is described as a result of the castration of Uranus, the sky god. And Uranos, who we will be talking about later in our tour. Yeah, we'll meet him again. Um, and, yep. uh, yeah. Um, he is um, uh, in a 
continual rape of Gaia, Earth, um, and Gaia has her children trapped within her. Yep. Um, be- because, long story short, Uranus is afraid of them taking over from him. Sure. So that's kind of his solution is to not let them be born. Um, so uh, Gaia consults with her children, and Cronus, the youngest, agrees to castrate Uranus uh, sure. for for his mother. But yeah, and he's in, he's the agent involved in the yeah. sort of primordial separation of earth and sky because at this particular point in the universe, sky itself, Uranus is literally resting completely on top of Gaia or Earth, right? Well, yeah. So we need an etymological myth to describe the separation, why the heavens are above and why the earth is below and what it and what caused that separation. Yeah. So we have that in there. And I think it's it's a good actually it's good that you mentioned that too because um, the qualities of the children uh, are reflected in their parents. So yes. we need to know a little bit about Uranus. So it's yeah. not, you know, it's a good, good yeah. idea. You mentioned yeah. uh, his sort of lecherous quality, right? His, his propensity for desire uh, and uh, hedonistic uh, sort of uh, expression. Okay, so let's turn to our reading. As soon as he cut off the genitals with adamant, he threw them from land into the turbulent sea. They were carried over the sea a long time, and white foam arose from the immortal flesh. Within a girl grew. First she came to holy Kithara, and next she came to wave-washed Cyprus. A revered and beautiful goddess emerged, and grass grew under her supple feet. Aphrodite, foam-born goddess and well-crowned Kithara, gods and men name her, since in foam she grew, and Kithara, since she landed at Kithara and Kyprogenea, since she was born in wave-beat Cyprus, and Philomades, since she appeared from the genitals. Eros accompanied her, and fair longing followed, when first she was born and went to join the gods. She was such honor from the first, and this is her portion among men and immortal gods, maidens' whispers and smiles and deceptions, sweet pleasure and sexual love and tenderness. All right. So, um, as we were just mentioning, the um, that starts with uh, Kronos cutting off his father's genitals and throwing them into the sea. Right. So it starts with an act of violence, castration. Yes. Right. Yes. Sex and violence is m- yes. much of what Greek mythology is. So here it is in two lines compressed. Don't need to know anything else. Close the book and go have a beer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Pretty much. Now the very first. Um, the very first. Uh, question or problem to solve here is what is Aphrodite goddess of? Uh, yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, yeah, like All the gods do have timai, right? Yeah. They do have honors. They do have spheres of influence. They are described as having, um, you know, what their agon, uh, no, their ergon is, their work is, mm-hmm. the work of Mars, the works of Aphrodite, right? And I think, you know, often we, we uh, as moderns, when we think about Venus, and I think that word that name is more popular than the Greek Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. Um, they they automatically we automatically make a series of assumptions about what it is what it is that she represents, and I, I think that it's 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 cute, but it's not entirely accurate, right? Not for the ancients. No, um, we we think like love, right? We think like Harlequin romance, and Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day. And cherubs and, and chocolates cherubs, and roses yeah, and, and wooey. red velour and silk yeah. and satin. And, you know, um, what is the line? That, um, uh, something about uh, 
brown paper packages tied, tied up, up with string. string. Yeah. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I like all that sort of, all that romance of it, right? Yes, and lace and yeah. perfume. Yeah, that all yeah. comes much, much, much later. And, and and I think it's just simple to say that her timai, her honor, uh, is uh, is sex. Yeah, sexual desire. Yeah. And I think we have... Eros in Greek, right? Yes. Desire, right? And we have um, layered on and kind of distanced and sanitized it and crudishized it almost sure. um, to make it a little bit more palatable to us. But yeah. um, Aphrodite is the sexual attraction. And yeah. it's, me- it's interesting that you just mentioned Eros there because yes. Um, Eros... Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. tell us about Eros. Well, he's one of the primal beings. He's the last of the primal beings to appear. Uh, he is the force of desire. And um, immediately he is, is uh, grafted onto uh, this feminine force, right, uh, Aphrodite, at the moment of her birth, and uh, uh, as an attendant, right? And um, the erotic force, right, in Hesiod is, um, of course, one of attraction. And, and since we're talking about this in, in almost in sort of pseudoscientific uh, terminology, it's a lot like gravity. Remember we were talking about gravity, like mm-hmm. thinking about the erotic or eros as a force, as a force of attraction, right? Mm-hmm. And there are forces of repulsion as well, right? But that, that movement together, you know, because really what is sex? Like beyond the biology of it, you know, but, you know, there's something else that's going on. It's, there's a universal sort of quality that is really hard to define. Um, you need uh, another whole podcast to talk about about the etymology of erotics, yes. right? And 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 then, and it's enough, really, just to sort of say here for now that she is uh, the force of desire, right? Mm-hmm. But there's so much more that goes into understanding really what that means, mm-hmm. right? And that um, that's significant that Eros is one of those first four primordial beings. I think so. Because it's an explanation of how we and animals and yeah. nature, how procreation happens, how yeah. we keep repopulating the earth. Yeah. Um, so it's that, yeah, and, that and explanation it, there. Exactly. And, 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 and their order or their sequence of arrival, right? We get... We get chaos, we get the chaos, chaos, feminine yeah. force. We get Gaia. Well, we're going. We're going to be talking about this yeah, all night will, if we go through yeah, this. No. <laughs> but, and then we get the two male figures, the Latin, Tartarus, and then we get Eros. And then Eros signals to the reader, at least in this cosmological model, that the procreative force is going to be the way through coupling. Right? Yeah. It's going to be the way that we're going to move the cosmos forward. Right? And and that's because uh, parthenogenetic reproduction is cool. Right, it's kind of neat, and for it's, our it listeners, seems like it kind of is bizarre. And for our listeners not familiar yeah. with uh, parthen- with the word parthenogenic, it's right. a really great word to pull out from time to time. Um, it is it simply means made and born, so it's birth without it's birth from the mother, usually the mother alone. Yeah. Um, although you can argue, it's like plants yeah. do it. Certain yeah. animal species yeah. are capable um, of doing it. Yeah, and it is a term. I did yeah. ask some scientists, and it, it is a term that they use in uh, in science. So it's a oh, totally, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been vetted. But I yeah. just wanted to come back to the, to this idea of of, um, awesome. of of Aphrodite being born, um, and and the circumstances of her of her birth, or, yeah. or um, yeah, I guess birth would be the word here. Um, yeah, it's all we can use. Yeah, right? 
there's not really a, a no. good English word. It's not, yeah. Well, um, but anyway, so right? she's so Aphrodite, right? Foam born, right? Yeah. So we have um, a female goddess who yes. is being born or yeah. created from from a male organ yeah. alone, the penis of yeah. the sky god yeah. Uranus. Yeah, and that she is a force of attraction, yes. but she's created in the circumstance of separation. Right, the and separation violence. of and violence, yeah. uh, um, the separation of Uranus and Gaia. Yeah. Um, so this this ties in with our idea of reconciliation of opposites about sure. gods um, kind of walking that that line between mm. being one thing and, and being the other. Yeah, like the 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 gender descriptions or layering in these lines is compressed to the point of madness because mm-hmm. we're we're seeing. Female figures parthenogenetically create male companions, and then uh, those male companions uh, separate themselves uh, from the female, from the feminine. So we get gender separation, and then we get familial violence, and we get a a goddess of uh, sexuality uh, and desire and erotics being born from or manifesting from a, a male you know, penis, right, from yeah. a phallus. So when you see Aphrodite, this goddess, this image of beauty and perfection, you're, you do see a feminine form, but, but that, what, it's, it's, a, it's a deceptive because what is really below it is the power of Uranus, the male sky god, specifically his lust, his, yes. his uh, hedonistic quality, his desire for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Because although Aphrodite as a goddess is, of course, fertile, right, uh, and it, um, she is, in her etymology, in her origin, a fertility goddess. You mentioned Astarte and Ishtar, yeah. right? Uh, um, so this is a, an essential quality of this being. But at the same time, as a sex goddess, right, we're seeing something about sex being expressed from a gender perspective. One is that sex is for reproduction, which we get in the first hundred lines of the of the theogony, but then sex can also be for pleasure, right? So you're seeing these two ideas being thrown around, right? The pleasure of it and the reproductive quality. And and this idea about Aphrodite's fertility and so on is something we can talk about when we look at the Homeric hymn if we need to. Yeah. Um, and the idea of of a goddess appearing kind of spontaneous, it's not even spontaneous, but appearing yeah. from a male goddess. I mean, that's what we get with Athena and Zeus. So it's not, it's not completely um, out of, yeah. out of. It's not out of whack. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, but then kind of mythology is all a little bit out of whack. Yeah, so well, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Come to expect um, the bizarre. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, don't rule anything out. Well, and in, look, yeah. and, and, and that's, and actually that's no small point because Aphrodite is born, right, from, Uranus's genitals, right? Uh, Athena is born from the head, and, of, and she's a goddess, of and she's a goddess wisdom. of wisdom, right? Yeah. So the location of body parts and their function and so on are important. They're no small details, right? It's not like Zeus went for a walk and found her under a rock somewhere. No, he, she was born from his head. Dionysus is born from the thigh, yeah. right? And 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 here Aphrodite is the manifest sort of penis of Uranus, right? This deep potentiated sky god. Right? Um, yeah, so it's extremely powerful. 
Yes. By the way. Yes. Yeah. So I did want to mention um, just her epithets there uh, mm-hmm. because he's he gives three um, mm. Kithara. So yeah. um, she's Aphrodite's associated closely with the islands of Kithara and and, and Cyprus. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, and those were um, early early um, uh, cult centers. Yes. And um, I had read that famous. Cult, yeah. Famous. Cult, very famous. Cult yeah. Centers I had read Aphrodite. that the oldest cult center for Aphrodite is on the west coast of Cyprus. And yeah. It was like 12th century. Like, yeah. we're really going back Yeah, there. like, yeah. Yeah, we're going past the archaic. We're going way, way back. Yeah. Yeah. Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. Um, philo, Philomedes? Philomedes, yeah. It means laugh. Genitals. Um, it's, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. It also um, says here that it's, well, it's actually a, according to the footnotes, uh-huh. a play on words, mm-hmm. actually, between the word laughter and the word genital. Yeah. Um, which which are quite close. Yeah, so it yeah. so it means laughter loving, but mm-hmm. it's it's a play on that pun um, also of of genitals. Yeah. As well. Yeah. So um, so I think let's leave. I think we're ready maybe to leave this one and move into looking at at the hammer. Was there anything? Well, just that little bit there. No, I think that's a pretty good, yeah. pretty good. Kick I mean, there, it. there is there is a lot more that we could go into here, but we have three different passages sure. that we want to look at today. She, she so. rises up from the foam. Her yeah. name means foam born. Afros means foam. Dite means born, right, or to come from. Right? And just in case anybody is listening and and going, wait, wait, that's not where Aphrodite comes from. Yeah. We do have two different origin stories for Aphrodite. Yeah, we do. So this. Um, Hesiod is writing around 800 BCE, somewhere kind of there, just Mm -hmm. after the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is another later story that kind of grafts her into the Olympian family and has her as a daughter of Zeus. Yes. And that Aphrodite is referred to as... uh, Common. Dione, the Dionian Aphrodite from... No. No. Dione is the mother, right? So in the the common Aphrodite is simply the daughter of Zeus and this goddess Dione, who really nobody knows, and is just a sort of a footnote stuck in on on a few other places. It's part of the Homeric tradition. Yeah. Right? So that's, um, it's still, it's just, it's still Aphrodite. It's just a different... Genesis. Less interesting, maybe? I don't know. Maybe I'm going to get in trouble. I think this is far more interesting. The celestial Aphrodite, right, or the Uranian Aphrodite, the one that we're we're discussing now in Hesiod's Theogony, is the more potent of the two. Definitely. But but it's it's necessary to mention, if you read Plato's Symposium, you'll get the story of the common Aphrodite and the celestial Aphrodite. Uh, And then uh, you'll also see, I think it's important to mention as well, because... In uh, in the Theogony, uh, we get the Uranian, but when we look at the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, which we'll do uh, later, um, next. or next, <laughs> yeah. um, I, it's always been my sort of pet theory that what we're, what we're looking at in the Homeric tradition, in the Homeric hymn, which is written in that type of language, is, the, is, the, uh, is this actual transformation that we're speaking about. At the beginning is the celestial Uranian Aphrodite, uh, and then at the end, she becomes uh, the more common Aphrodite, mm. right? And you can look at the language at the end of the hymn that describes this sort of transformation. So there's a couple of, of things that are going on there. So that's why those Homeric hymns are, for me anyway, so important. So let's move into the Homeric hymn. The Homeric hymn to Aphrodite is one of the four big ones, the four long ones. Um, 
Yeah, there's a and couple of small ones. Again, too, we but... spend <laughs> we spend several months talking about this with our students. Yeah. So um, we're just um, <laughs> we're trying to put this put all of this into a, to pick... into a nutshell. It's yeah. so hard. It's, it's impossible. And you know, okay, so... go and read it. Yeah, and you'll, you will yeah. thoroughly enjoy it. And I'll put up um, on, on the website. I'll put up the specific um, passages that that we looked at and the translation that we use. That's that's a really really good translation. Yeah. Um, for approaching this stuff. Susan Shelmerdine's yeah. translation of Lots the of good Homeric hymns. So the hymn to Aphrodite, um, again, this is anonymous. They're called Homeric in the style of Homer, but they're, not, they're part of this collection of hymns to various god, um, gods and goddesses that we don't really know who wrote them. Um, and they're kind of around the time of Homer and Hesiod. So yeah. again, we're looking at these, these old sources. And um, the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite... Um, it, the basic plot of it is that Aphrodite has been making all the gods fall in love with mortals, and when you're divine, mortals are kind of icky and gross because they get old and sick and die and decay. Right. Um, and the gods are getting kind of sick of sick of um, Aphrodite playing tricks on them and taunting them. Um, well, there's this. nothing they can do about it. And there's nothing they can do about it no. because she is a force, yeah. right? She's this force. Yeah. Um, and, and the hymn makes it clear that there's only three goddesses mm -hmm. that um, are unaffected by Aphrodite's power. So the right. three virgin goddesses, Athena, Hestia, and Artemis. Mm -hmm. Um and so Zeus steps in, and Zeus makes Aphrodite fall in love with Anchises. And if that name sounds vaguely familiar to you, he is the father of Aeneas, who the Romans then take as their legendary founder. And Virgil writes a big long poem about his um, Aeneas's flight from Troy and the founding of Rome and all that good yeah. stuff. Yeah, we're not worried about um, that. Yeah, so. Um, basically, Zeus is in charge of the universe at this point, and he um, is able to turn Aphrodite's uh, power against her. It, so, uh, oh, yeah, no, and that's a, that's a, an interesting point. The the hymn starts out unlike any of the other hymns. Not um, uh, it, it is a song of praise, but it uh, describes the sort of universal quality of Aphrodite's power. At least it tries to, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Are Why we going to read that yeah, section yeah. and then I'm talk a little bit about... I'm going to read um, lines 53 to 74. 53 to 74. Just in her heart, sweet longing for Anchises, who at that time, like the immortals in build, was tending cattle on the lofty peaks of Mount Ida, rich in springs. Then indeed, seeing him, laughter-loving Aphrodite was struck with love, and astounding desire seized her heart. To Cyprus she went and entered her fragrant temple at Paphos, where her sacred precinct was, and her fragrant altar. There she went inside and shut the gleaming doors. And the graces bathed her and anointed her with ambrosial olive oil, such as is poured over the gods who are forever divinely sweet, which was made fragrant for her. Having clothed herself well in all of her beautiful robes adorned with gold, laughter-loving Aphrodite hastened to Troy, leaving behind sweet-smelling Cyprus, swiftly making her way high up among the clouds. She came to Ida, rich in springs, mother of beasts, and went straight to the shepherd's hut across the mountain, and fawning after her leapt gray wolves and flashing-eyed lions, bears and swift leopards, hungry for deer. Seeing them, she rejoiced in her heart and cast longing in their breasts, and together they all lay down in pairs in their shadowy lairs. Okay, so one of the things that I really like about this passage is we get this 
this intimate scene of a goddess getting ready for a date. Yeah, I mean, this is effectively what this is. She goes to her temple and um, Cyprus. And and just to mention, we often have an idea of gods being everywhere all at the same time. Ah, not. Um, but not for the not for the ancients. Gods mm-hmm. could be away and they go and they they visit their different sites sure. and they that get kind distracted. of thing. They get distracted. They do. Yeah, things. they're yeah. they're more they're a lot more like people. Yeah, um, they're so, not omnipresent. That's right. right, and they're not omniscient. And they're not omniscient. Um, Nor are they omnipotent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she goes to Cyprus. Yep. As we mentioned, um, Zeus has cast this astounding desire. Yeah. Um, has seized her heart mm-hmm. and. It's overtaken. It's overtaken her, um, and it's interesting to hear that the the poet is using laughter, loving Aphrodite is sure. using that, and as we just explained, yeah, that that should yeah. have connotations with with what kind of Afro, with what version of Aphrodite we're dealing with um, yeah. as well. Bring, re, remind us of what, that she's connected with the genitals. She's connected with the, with the sexual yeah. um, reproduction as well. And, and you get it's a powerful metonym. Laughter, right, signals. A number of things, right, to the to the listener, to the to the the, the observer, right. It's it, it's a powerful metaphor that talks about uh, ideas of uh, enjoyment and you know sexual yeah. desire and all that type of stuff, right. It's, it's supposed to be fun. So she takes off to <laughs> <laughs> she takes off to Cyprus, and uh, she is within her temple. She closes the door and yeah, they, just the graces. Aphrodite is they call often, it the toilet scene. Yes, yeah. she's doing her toilet. Yes, right. Um, the um, Aphrodite is often seen with the graces. She's often depicted in art, with um, even nineteenth-century yeah. art, with the with the graces. They weave her gowns. Yes, yes. So they bathe her and anoint her mm-hmm. ambrosial olive oil. So mm-hmm. she's get she's going the full nine yards. And those are the daughters. Month. Those are the daughters of Zeus. Yes, they are. Yeah, and and this is not a daughter of Zeus. This no. is I don't know what the relation would be like a great aunt or something but an older generation right yeah you know like much much older i'm tempted to try to figure that out but i also know from experience that that trying to figure out the god's genealogy is usually not worth it not not she's representative of something other than the olympian family something older yeah and and, you know motive is important in the homeric hymn asking simple questions like why does zeus do this Mm -hmm. why does aphrodite do this how is it that zeus can do this so how is it that Zeus can, if Aphrodite is goddess of sexuality, yeah. how is it that Zeus can use you, this yeah. power? Well, that's a that's a good. How do you handle that a, one? Well, that's a that's a good question, right? Um, in in order to sort of pull that apart, and again, it's going to go off topic because <laughs> this this goddess has got her roots in just about everything. But in Hesiod's Theogony, there is a scene that is called the Namos scene, mm-hmm. um, uh, and where Zeus, after having won his uh, crown, right, and ascended to the sort of throne, uh, uh, after sort of casting down uh, the, the previous generation, the Titans, distributes to his kin, right, his brothers and his sisters, uh, their share of power, right, the well, and the allies as well, right, yeah. and Any, anybody and who's anyone else who him. came yeah. along, right, yeah. and uh, he gives them this portion right so the what i have heard is the supposition is that it's sort of like handing out a privilege that mm-hmm. can be revoked if that privilege is is mistreated 
Right. Yeah, it's and it's it's his power. It, mm-hmm. it it emphasizes his power that he has the power to give you something, mm-hmm. but he also has the power to take right. it away from you. It's like, um, you know, you can revoke a license. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I was trying but, to think of like a modern example. I but, can't think of anything the off the top is, of my head. He well, because Zeus, just as a result of 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 what type of being he is, he has this power, right? He has this hypersexuality and this fertility yes, as well. Yes, he's very much about procreation. Right? So he, he can cause beings himself uh, to to fall in love with each other, right? Because the Uranian Aphrodite has the power prior to the Nomos scene. She's sort of there already. In fact, this is one of the reasons for the motivation to try to get her under control because she already has Timai. She's granted Timai at the moment of her birth. All the other gods do not. They have to be given this nomos, their share, portion, mm-hmm. or law, uh, by, a, by a god like Zeus. So when Zeus looks around the Olympian family, he sees brothers and sisters and he sees allies and so on, people who have entered into a sort of uh, contractual obligation to sort of operate the cosmos. But when he sees Aphrodite, and this is before the line one, right? Yeah. You know, he sees an interloper in many ways. He sees uh, someone like other. Right, you uh, see somebody someone, who's not, who he's not, who's not fully under his control. That's right, a, a contentious sort, yeah, sort somebody, of person. Somebody who could cause problems for well, him. Well, it is causing problems. It is causing problems yeah. because um, she's making him and everybody the, else all the fall. He, 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 right, yeah. right. It's like as Zeus wants harmony, right? As a father, he wants the Olympian family. Well, as right? a ruler, I would yeah, say. As a like, ru- he's, as more, a ruler, he's more of a ruler figure yeah. than a father figure, but that's a But he is father another. of gods yeah. and men, right? Yeah. So in that capacity, he wants civility, he wants order. And when a force or an individual is responsible for disrupting that and introducing a chaotic element, that person uh, needs to be dealt with, right? So at this particular point, Zeus... You know, he's been doing this, if you look at the other hymns and think about a mythological chronology. He's been tidying up his affairs uh, to kind of um, address any any threats to his yes. power, right? He's, he's so this is part of that tradition. His, yes. He's consolidating his, 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 his reign. reign. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Aphrodite is dealt with in this in yes. this regard. And this is how exactly how he deals with her. Yeah. He turns the tables on her. Right. So she falls victim to her own power and now she's not in a position to go around and right. and laugh at everybody else because she has done the exact same thing. That's right. That she's she guilty. Has, yeah, yeah. She's just as guilty as them. And and that'll stop it, right? Yeah. Because shame. And it does. Shame and public perception, right? Yeah. Um, so she gets, um, all dressed up yep. in her temple. Um, so gold, perfume, lots of, um, and then she heads to Ida and Ida, um, the Mount Ida is Mona. by Troy. Yeah. So when you see Ida, think Troy, yep. um, a lot of place names and people names as well, but lot, definitely lot place names. There. There's a lot of multiple place names for things in mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ida here, think Troy. Mm-hmm. Rich in springs, mother of beasts. Uh, oh, she has the mother of beasts. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we get here, and the reason that I wanted us to talk about this passage today, um, is we see her with nature yeah. happening here. So as she's walking through the fields, there's animals cavorting around her, and her power makes them mate. Um, they're basically... Um, well, I mean, our translation says lay down in pairs in their shadowy lairs, yeah. but they're basically getting busy mating. Like yeah. Aphrodite just walks, walks past by. them. Like, yeah. it's just like, yeah, her, 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 
her TMI sort of emanates from her, and it has an effect on the environment. So just by being in proximity to Aphrodite, it automatically generates this sort of erotic quality, right? Yes. And even nature itself, the Greek word is domnao, which means to tame. She's taming the wildness, right? And she's taming them. And how is she doing it? She's doing it by drawing them together so that they can couple, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that taming, right, is, is something that is part of the threat that Aphrodite, Aphrodite represents to the whole sort of cosmological model, right? Because she is, she's causing Poseidon to sleep with mortals. Just, you know, she's causing Hestia, not Hestia, because Hestia doesn't get over very much. Zeus. But she's causing Zeus and, and, and the other uh, siblings uh, and sisters of, of, uh, uh, of, of Zeus to, to couple with mortals. And that's just wrong. Because the, this is a concept like miscegenation, right? The mixing of races. Mm -hmm. It's not the, the hierarchical function of the universe is being blurred, yes. right? So gods, men, and animals exist like, in, a, in a trinity, right? It's like sleeping, and in with, that sleeping order. with your boss, right? right? It, blurs, it blurs those lines of authority. Well, and even more and so if, if, you, if, if that was an animal, yeah. right? So you have a god, mm -hmm. you have a human, a mortal, and then you have an animal. So that's part of the, the hierarchy. Aphrodite's power encompasses all of those things and affects all of those things. And the sort of existential threat that Domno or to tame represents the, as a blurring of those lines. Mm -hmm. Right? I can tame Zeus's authority by controlling his sexuality. I can contain, uh, uh, tame or contain the role of mortals, expand it or, or mm -hmm. deny it, or, or, and, and blur the lines between animal and mortal and God, right? So Zeus has to take some action, and he does. Mm -hmm. you know? the, 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 the early lines talk about the, um, the cosmic power, her cosmic power extends to all things, yes. right? Yes. It says it extends to all things, that it's pervasive and perhaps even eternal, and that uh, it does represent a, like I sort of said, an, a, like a, an existential threat. And she's also an interesting comparison, and we won't get into it right now. But just to think about um, in in the future as well, mm -hmm. um, she's also an interesting comparison with Circe um, in the Odyssey, um, the woman with the power over animals. Yeah, um, and that's. Uh, Oh, and there is a name for it. I want to say Putnia Theron, yeah. the, the mistress of animals yeah. motif mm -hmm. um, that comes out in a lot of mm -hmm. ancient mythologies. Sure. Um, or, and I'm saying, you know, ancient mythologies like Mediterranean, that's kind of where our yeah. focus is, yeah. um, um, of, of a female goddess with control over animals. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So why don't we have a look then, uh, move on to... Um, Hippolytus, mm -hmm. and have a look at um, Aphrodite with mortals. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so, oh, Hippolytus, yeah. Yeah. So, Isn't that what I said? Yeah. Oh, we're, no. we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're in classical Athens again. We're in the 5th century now, yep. right? We've kind of blasted through a number of things. And this is Euripides. And uh, it is a, a very, very interesting play. Um, Why don't you tell us kind of what it's about here, like thematic and plot? Well, okay. In a in nutshell, a, in a nutshell. <laughs> that that uh, that's the stupidest phrase ever. In a nutshell, we got to look up the etymology of that. In a nutshell, it's basically Euripides is uh, talking about the contest between two goddesses, 
right? Uh, and uh, between Aphrodite and Artemis. And this contest is sort of played out in the human realm with a character Apollot uh, named Hippolytus, who is a, um, uh, who is a hunter, uh, who is a virgin, who is chaste, but uh, uh, is a man. And this uh, is bizarre, too, and this to is, have a man. Yeah, well, that's part yeah. of it, right? So, and uh, who is a, a worshiper of Artemis, right? A follower of Artemis, uh, also a bastard son of Theseus. Right. Okay. Uh, and then, as a result of a number of things, right, um, about you know uh, when to speak and when not to speak, the power of the voice and so on, truth and power of oath, uh, it leads to his death at the hands of his own father. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I thought it was great, a uh, great poem to talk about uh, Aphrodite because she is the first person to speak in the play. Okay, and that's where we're going to start. Our reading is going to be the first twenty-three lines of Euripides' Hippolytus. I am powerful and not without a name among mortals and within the heavens. I am called the goddess Cypris, of those who dwell within Pontus and the, and the boundaries of Atlas and see the light of the sun. I treat well those who revere my power, but I trip up those who are proud towards me. For this principle holds among the race of the gods also. They enjoy being honored by mortals. I shall now show you the truth of these words. Theseus's son, Hippolytus, the Amazon's offspring, reared by pure Pythias, he alone of the citizens of this land of Trozen, says that I am by nature the most vile of divinities. He spurns the bed and doesn't touch marriage, but honors Apollo's sister, Artemis, the daughter of Zeus, considering her the greatest of divinities. Always consorting with the virgin through the green wood, he rides the land of beasts and with swift dogs, having come upon a more than more than mortal companionship. I don't begrudge him these things. Why should I? But I will punish Hippolytus this day for the wrongs he has done me. I don't need much toil, since long before this I prepared most of what has to be done. Okay. These are not, this is not a good thing. This. No, no. And this, this, is, this, is, well. this, is, this is the problem um, with the Greek gods, is that there's so many of them, and you get gods who want opposite things, and us mere mortals are stuck trying to figure out how to please everybody and in the end not pleasing anyone, like yeah. Hippolytus. Euripides is a real bugger. Uh, he is not going to um, make things easy, no. right? And his sort of uh, treatment of divine justice and the roles of, of mortals, right, under the heel, right, uh, metaphorically of the gods, uh, in this case, you know, of course generates tragedy, right? And, you know, it's like you say, it's a fool that, you know, spits into the wind, right? But nonetheless, these are the sorts of things that go on here. And when we get this prologue, uh, when, when, when Aphrodite herself speaks at the beginning of this play, um, her speech mirrors a speech at the very end of the play by Artemis herself. So it opens with, with Aphrodite and it ends with Artemis. And this whole play becomes an agon and it becomes a contest between the two that's played out in the household of Theseus that just generates more death and, and tragedy, mm -hmm. right? And destruction, right? Mm -hmm. um, there is a little tiny bit at the end of what you might consider to be hope maybe or something, right? But then, you know, that's it, and you're just sort of left dealing with the detritus of this broken house. Right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it is it is a very interesting um, prologue 
that that sets up the, um, the the terrible tragic irony that will be generated here. Now, can you tell us what that tragedy is? Yeah. Because knowing that we're dealing with Aphrodite and Artemis yeah. here, I'm guessing it's going to have something to do with sex. It does. So, do yeah. you want to just fill our listeners in who might not be familiar with? Well, it's Hippolytus is chaste, which means mm-hmm. he's a virginal figure, right? And as a young man in this society, he's sort of in, in almost in, in in this play at least represented as a, a, almost kind of like a, a asexual being, right? And he's he's neither male nor female, uh, but in a sort of strange sort of a limbo that left the Greeks uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, his constant praise and adoration of a figure like the Diana, or in this case Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, the sister of Apollo, right, um, places him in that, uh, that amongst those beings that we talked about at the beginning of the Homeric hymn that are not affected by uh, the power of Aphrodite, right, mm-hmm. because they are the virgin goddesses. So he's sort of, in, in some way, by denying his sexuality, he and he literally does it here. Like he, he at one point just after this, when you see him, he comes on the stage with a with a fellow huntsman, and they honor the statue of Artemis, but deny the statue of Aphrodite. And even that older man says, "You shouldn't do that. That's not yeah. a wise act." Yeah, and you would associate Artemis much more with being worshipped by women, yes. um, and she she also was a goddess of childbirth as yes. well. All right. Okay. So, how should we tackle this um, this particular passage? How do you want to tackle this? Well, it's a good passage to talk about what the gods concern themselves with, as okay. far as their relationship to mortals. And since we're dealing with Aphrodite, you know, of course she's a goddess of sexuality, and we can see what the nature of her dishonor here is. And she's being dishonored at the hands of a mortal, Hippolytus. And he's doing it um, not entirely intentionally, although I think there is some blame here. Um, he's doing it by denying um, Aphrodite uh, not only the, the honor of sacrifice, but the role of sexuality in his life. Right? There's something, you know, and I'll just say weird. There's something weird about Hippolytus. Right? Mm-hmm. And he, he's not operating uh, in a method that is acceptable or recognizable. Right? By uh, by the Greek audience, yes, right. So the, it's perverse and it's aberrant, right? His sort of perpetual youth, right? Uh, but he, without sexuality, is a component of humanity that can't be denied, right? So by by locking away that that part of his humanity, he's you could say in a, in some regard he's almost acting like a god. Ah, okay. Right. So. You know, he he has this, and then he has this unnatural companionship with Artemis, right? That's referenced in in the lines. But if we're if we're going to look at a close reading, I like the way that it starts, where it says, "I am powerful," right? Um, and this is Aphrodite talking, and she's talking about um, her sort of universal quality, right? And a lot of times in myth, we talk about. We use theological terms like imminent and transcendent to describe mm-hmm. the roles of the gods and like talk about anthropomorphism and things like that. And like this this quality of Aphrodite's sort of universal power, I think, is as close as we're gonna get in the Greek tradition 
to a notion of transcendence that we see in, say, Judeo-Christian and thought. And transcendence mm -hmm. is the idea that the God is outside of creation. Or that, something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas immanent, um, it's like what we saw with the theogony that we were just talking about, where the gods are a part of creation and dependent on it. Yeah, they're in like, it, th yeah. right? So transcendent, I, there's a number of different sort of theological descriptions of it, but I just picked universally applicable or significant. Okay. Okay? So this is, this is the idea of desire or sexuality is universally acceptable, it is universally applicable, and it is significant. So it's transcendent in this particular part. And it gets boiled down into this figure of Aphrodite. So are they omniscient? Nay. Are they omnis, omnip, omnipresent? Nay. Um, but there is this universal quality, right? Okay. And um, that, that's Aphrodite. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes her so fascinating, right? That, we, we kind of talked about that a little earlier on. But um, so she, she says, I am powerful. She's talking about her, um, uh, her kratos, her power, right? And not without name among mortals. So right away she's talking about, she's um, defining or delineating her timai, right? Her mm -hmm. honor. And, and, and we know through our study of epic uh, and Euripides, Euripides, Euripides is using, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a, a classical um, uh, play, but he's using epos. He's using the Homeric language uh, to signify to the audience what is, uh, what's going on here, right? And when she talks about not without name, that's the anonymia that we talk about in Homer, right? That they fear. They don't want to be nameless. And if you anonymous. think anonymous, right? Yeah. And they don't want to be without name, right? They want to be remembered. And if you think a hero is, that's what a hero defines a hero. Well, partially, yes. It really defines what a God is. Yeah. Because a God without name or without power or is, honor is nothing. Read the Homeric yeah. hymn to Demeter. Footnote. And actually, um, yeah. there's a really interesting book out mm -hmm. um, that is based on that premise. Yes. It's, uh, um, and I'm, uh, God's behaving badly. Okay. And the idea is that all of the Olympian gods are living in a townhouse in London, and everybody has forgotten about them. So go to Amazon.ca. Yeah, and check it out, okay. or check it out from the library. Right. Um, you will appreciate it all the much more having having understood some of this. So she, she talks about her power, her universal quality, and then she says she's not without name, right, Ananomos, and um, among mortals and within the heavens, right? Mm -hmm. So... Again, she's sort of describing, right, her the the limits of her power, right, uh, in this one one particular section, right, and then then she goes on to name herself. I am called the goddess uh, Cyprus, right, or the goddess Aphrodite, depending on which translation you're looking at, of those who dwell within uh, Pontus and the prescribed boundaries of Atlas, and who's those who see the light of the sun. So and heaven, earth, and everywhere else. And Pontus. The circling it's, ocean, yeah, right. The outer limits of the yeah. known world, right? Yeah, and and that so again, idea, that, that entire yeah. that entire yeah. cosmos is under her influence, right? From beyond the Black Sea to the pillars of of Heracles, right, where Atlas holds up the mm -hmm. the dome of the of uh, the heavens, right? And and then it also says, and I like that line where it says, "and see the light of the sun," right? Yeah, because the pleasures of sexual desire and erotics is something that does not exist in the underworld. Good point. Right? It's not for the dead. Good, good it's catch. only for the living, right? So, and, and, and it's a, a generative force. When we looked at Helios, remember? We looked at Helios as like shining on the world, right? Mm -hmm. Bringing life, right? And, and, and um, 
you know, authority, that type of stuff, right? So there, there's, there's, that is going on there. And I like the idea of using it and saying that it's a subscribed space, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you subscribe to a magazine, basically you're writing your name on it and they send you a subscription, right? But the idea is to, like, to write under, right? Subscripto, yes. right? Um, to a, but it also means to assent to, okay. right? So you're giving your permission, right? You're assenting to it. So she's sort of saying, this is where I'm operant, right? In this spot, right? Put a dotted line everything. around it. Yeah, <laughs> everything within it, right? And um, all those beings that find themselves in it, right, are in my domain, right? For the, for, for the most part, right? And um, as she points out later, she doesn't begrudge him these other things, but her issue is that He's denying her. But just yeah. before we get to that, the next the next couple lines, lines five and six, I, I, I'm reading them and I'm thinking those are really familiar. Yeah. Um, because we see this a lot with men. This is the heroic code. Yeah. Um, that she's operating by. I treat well those who revere my power. So yes. I'm a friend to my friends, mm -hmm. Philoi, mm -hmm. but I trip up those who are proud towards me. I'm an enemy to my enemies. And that is... That's ho that's ho that's hero talk. That's hero yeah. talk. That's yeah. the Homeric heroic yeah. code. You are friends to your friends and enemies to your enemies. Yeah, and that's a big... Yeah difference from what we think of heroes and that kind of thing today yeah but that's what she's operating on right here and mm -hmm. so if you're not her friend you are her enemy, you're her enemy. yeah so it, it becomes a kind of a black and white issue um and that that the vernacular there that method of speech that epos is the hero speech right and you see it it's part of the iliadic sequence and you can sort of see um uh, euripides is using it to sort of signal to his audience that that there's something sort of important um, uh, going on here, right? When this goddess talks about honor and when she talks about Philoi. And she says, uh, I treat well those who revere my power, my yeah. timai, right? Um, and, but I trip up those. And the other translation says, I lay low, Ooh, right? Yeah. So like trip up sounds kind of mischievous and like it might not really do anything. But when you say you lay someone low, you're really That's, taking them down, yeah. right? Right, and so you, you lay you lay those people low, but I lay low those who are proud towards me. And I'm going to guess that's hubris. Yeah, we're, we're so we're talking about proud. We're talking about hubris and ate, right? So, um, but proud towards me, and and in the other tr translation that I looked up from Kovacs, it says those who think proud thoughts. Right. So you don't even really have to do anything. You just have to think it, and you're already. It comes down to not knowing your place. Yeah. That right. not respecting that boundary between gods yeah. and humans mm -hmm. and and respecting and accepting that kind of... They're up there and we're down here. You better we're do insignificant. Your job. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So you got you to gotta watch because there, there's that there's that ate coming in there, right? And she says, for this principle holds among the race of the gods also. They enjoy being honored by mortals. That's, and a, that's, a, that's a really cool point. Yeah. What do you... It's, it's, that, it's that key point that we were just talking principle, about. This principle... That, mm -hmm. Well, and, and this principle as well makes me think that um, just reminds me of that anthropomorphic nature of the Greek gods that, again, often we have modern or more modern um, or different conceptions of gods, of them being, uh, or of a god or gods being substantially different yeah. from people. Here we have the Greek gods were... Yeah. 
a soap opera. They were yeah. like people. They were like mortals. Yeah. They got into every possible, pretty much every possible mess. Yeah. Um, they were still gods, mm -hmm. mind you, mm -hmm. but they're modeled like on... Like the heroes, everything's amplified. On, exactly, yeah. and they're modeled on the human experience and the human characteristic. Yeah, the human and condition. So, so again, like this, like I said, the same heroic code that mm -hmm. our heroes are operating by um, is the same one that the gods are operating by. Right. And, and as you were saying, the gods want honor they by do. the mortals. And, and with that statement, she's placing herself in the community of the gods. She's saying, yes. my beliefs in this situation are not unknown. Any other yeah. god in this situation would act as I have done. Right? Yes. Because because this principle holds amongst the race of gods, right? Genos means race or stock or kin. So, uh, and the reason why I wanted to look at some of the Greek there, because the the thing that was kind of nagging me a little bit was, which Aphrodite is speaking? Ah, okay. Right? And, and, and is it the common, this is 428 BC, or is it the more august Lizard. and powerful Uranian celestial? Right. I'm inclined to, to, to root that it's the more august and uh, yeah. one. Just Why not? I, you know, I don't have a definitive answer. I, you know, by looking at the Greek where when, when she says the race of the gods, that we're just like race or stock. I, I, wanted, I wanted, of course she's of the same type of race. I wanted a word that meant more like, well, it does also mean kin. So I, I wanted something to say but like you, brothers and sisters so like I could kind of yeah, figure so it out. Yeah, so you could kind of figure yeah, out what but it's, it's fairly was. ambivalent. Yeah. But it says they... And they, which she includes herself amongst, yeah. they enjoy being honored by mortals, right? Cairo, rejoice, be glad, right? Yeah, um, yeah. so they, they rejoice, being, they enjoy being honored by mortals. And not only do they enjoy it. They require it. They require it. They need it. They need it, yeah. yeah. And this isn't, but this might be kind of one of the things that's brewing below the surface, but that doesn't really fully come out till you look at, like the Homeric hymn to Demeter, for example, too understand the real relationship between mortals and uh gods right yeah i shall i shall and and this and you know talking about the the epos the, the heroic speech that not only do you see it in that that section that you just described right but also here you literally get a line that could be taken from the iliad mm -hmm. or, or even from from hesiod for example right where it says yeah. i shall now show you the truth of these words right aletheia the truth of these words right like that, that particular line tells us that we're in a different sort of headspace right now. Mm -hmm. There's something completely different going on. Because unlike the others in this story, right, um, she, Aphrodite in this case, is going to tell you the truth. You might not like what she has to say, or you might not like what she does, but others in this story, the chorus, Phaedra, Theseus, are all bound, even Hippolytus himself, are bound to secrecy by the power of the oath. They can't speak the truth, right? And as a result of that, they meet with a tragic end, mm -hmm. right? So we're getting a bit of truth here. She's gonna, she's like, hey, I'm going to lay it down for her. I'm going to tell you sometimes the truth hurts. This is the way it's going to be, right? What you, what you, you know, believe is something entirely different, unlike the others, right? Those mortals, right? On this play, you know. So and then she moves into Hippolytus's crime against her. Yeah. Um, and I mean, here this is just a great scene of how vengeful the gods can be. Yeah. Um, they're jealous. Yes, very jealous. Yeah. So his crime is that he's openly disrespecting her. Yep. Um, to others, um, and by not worshiping her, he's he is saying 
that she's the worst of the gods. Yeah. So it's not even just that he's just not sacrificing to her, which yeah. is bad enough. And keeping but it quiet or private. He's yeah. openly dissing her, I think is how yeah, kids say it totally. these days. Yeah. Um, he says that, I am. Yeah, and the most vile. And then he spurns the bed and doesn't touch marriage. So he wants nothing to do with women. He wants no. nothing to do with marriage. No. And um, as we were mentioning before, Aphrodite is the goddess of sexuality. Um, and for the Greeks, um, for women, that was within marriage. So it's tied to marriage, but she's not a goddess of marriage. That's right. Hera's turf. Yeah, they work in concert. It's kind of interesting that Hera's not upset here, but she's probably upset with Zeus. <laughs> um, but honors Apollo's sister Artemis, as we've said, one of those three um, female divinities who who are immune to, or who were immune to Aphrodite's um, power. Right. Um, so certainly um, some inner... They hunt inner, together. Inner, inner divinity um, jealousy, rivalry, rivalry jealousy. Yeah. <laughs> going on there as well, yeah. which is, again, is not, is not uncommon no. in, in mythology. Um, but she says, like, I don't begrudge him, you know, going off hunting and keeping dogs and, you know, wanting to hang out with a goddess. But, yeah. um, sorry, you're dishonoring me, and that's that. And I'm going to take action. And, and I'm she gonna does. take action. But, you know, in that section, when you're talking about what his crime is, she lays it out. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I don't think anybody, you know, would not know what it's about, not about. Um, it says that he alone of the citizens of this land of truth and says that I am by nature, Phusis, right, mm -hmm. the most uh, vile of divinities, the basest is what the other translation talked okay. about. So that it's the act of of sex itself, right, is um, being um, degraded, yeah. diminished, and devalued, mm -hmm. right, by by his um, by his uh, hubristic. Uh, yeah, so it's not nature, just right? it's so yeah. it's not just the the goddess, but by the having whole, this attitude, yeah. it's about sex yeah. and it's about reproduction. She's like, I can't it's stop. Like, that. it's not just about yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. So he spurns the bed and doesn't touch marriage, but honors Apollo's sister, no, uh, Artemis. Right, it's cool that that, that the, the, the notice the way they intentionally frame it. Right, they they uh, um, Adelphine, a sister. Right, Artemis, the daughter of Zeus. Dios, Koren, right? Daughter of Zeus, Kore, mm -hmm. right? The maiden daughter of Zeus. So if remember I was talking about hunting for clues as to mm -hmm. what you, you, one is talking, and I went back to race, and then I went through here. Yeah. When you see that she is talking about Artemis in this manner, it might be a little bit more of a clue. It says, but honors Apollo's sister Artemis, the daughter of Zeus. Because if she was, in fact, the common, she herself is a daughter of Zeus. Ah, right? so, so this is this, maybe a clue this that... is the opposite, right? So okay. it's it's an expression of exception, meaning um, she's like, well, of course, Apollo Artemis is a daughter of of Zeus, right? She is a sister of Apollo, right? Uh, so by by saying it that way, you you're you could potentially be saying, you know, well, I am not a daughter of Zeus. I I'm, I'm Uranian, right? I'm the celestial Aphrodite. I'm I'm different, right? I have more yeah. more status. Yeah, than I got a little more status in some way. So considering her the greatest of divinities, right? So it's establishing that hierarchy that we talked yeah. about and the competitive quality of the gods. Now the the next line, always consorting with the virgin through the green wood. So That's the virgin, great. of course, is Artemis. Yeah. But I've got a footnote here that the word used for consorting here is usually used in a sexual sense. Yeah, I know. So I thought that was really... So, so, uh, so by Aphrodite using this word here, it 
emphasizes the unnaturalness yeah. of what she knows it. Hippolytus is doing. Yeah, it's a tongue-in-cheek thing. She's like yeah. consorting. You know, you, you of can always. Of course, she's not yeah. consorting yeah, like, because you know, Artemis is. Yeah, because Artemis yeah. is a virgin, yeah. and so is Hippolytus, and they, you know, forever will be right. Yeah. But their relationship, in a way, is pseudosexual. Yes. Right. Because they they go off onto the forest, they hunt together, right? And you know they they tame the wilderness. He uses dogs. He rids the wilderness of beasts. And, There's the prey predator metaphor. And right? the metaphor of taming yeah. and metaphors of agriculture are used for sexual metaphors. Right. So taming beasts, plowing land, yeah. all of that kind of stuff is used for. Sex. Absolutely. And the locus amoenus, which yes, is the sexualized yes. landscape, is often the meadow or the forest, right? Yep. The wild place, yep. right? Where an encounter of a sexual nature occurs, whether yep. willingly or unwillingly. Tradition, Usually mostly unwillingly. unwillingly <laughs> right? But um, we can is, talk more about that when we get the into consorting, <laughs> that this sort of tongue in cheek phrase yep. that's being used here, it's a sexual term, but it's perverse. And you can tell that Aphrodite is using it intentionally. She's saying this consorting, it's it's it's, it's not right. It goes against the natural order. Hippolytus himself is not right. He, um, he's just, it doesn't, he doesn't integrate well. Somehow. Yeah, there, there's something wrong, yeah. right? And, and, and for that. And in today's you know, culture, I mean, we wouldn't think too much of that. But yeah. in, again, in Greek, in ancient Greek culture, yeah. it's a shame-based society. Totally. It's about conforming to society's Gender expectations. Gender rules and, are extremely rigid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And going outside of those, and yeah. I mean, people certainly did, but, but when you go outside of those gender roles, yeah. there are societal consequences. Totally. There was the roles of women and there were the roles of men. Yeah. Right? And, and what do we see with Hippolytus? We see a blurring of the line. Right? And a man trying to take on a, a, a more womanly role. Yeah, so, whether intentionally yeah. or not, whether, you know, it, it just is in between, and, and that makes them uncomfortable. That's and, why Euripides is, is a is And a I master. was thinking about this, too, with the idea of, of self-control, and I mean, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll have to visit this play, play again um, Love in, and in, in a later podcast, but the, but the idea of, of self-control, because, um, yeah, right. so he's got too much self-control that's his problem yeah. is he's got too much for his own good he's yeah, and you can't too do that. under control yeah the greek man has to have a certain degree of self-control but yeah. he's expected to have a sexual appetite he's expected yeah. to make use of prostitutes like there's yeah. no shame in that yeah. and um and there's no like it's it's we see it time and again that it's accepted that he'll go out and make use of prostitutes and other women and mistresses and well, all that kind of stuff the woman can't yeah um so hippolytus is so he's just so tightly wound <laughs> yeah he's wound up and repressed he's, i think yeah, is yeah. probably what we would say yeah. in psychoanalytical terms absolutely yeah well that would be a fascinating thing a psychoanalysis of that but, I knew you know, Freud wrote it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you got love and eros on one part as far as the themes is concerned, right? And the wild abandon yeah. of desire and all the hedonistic pleasure and so on. And then you have on the other, the sort of wisdom of sophrosyne, the moderation, the self-control, right? So there's moderation there, has no moderation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, and it's, those are the two poles that are being expressed here with this character, right? Or in this play, actually, yeah. not with the character. Because with, with Phaedra, for example, you see the loss of that. 
right? That's sort of the uh, the the antithesis of of his sophrosyne is her complete yeah. wild abandon. So that's right? a different podcast, yeah. but I did yeah. just want to mention it. It just occurred to me Chased. as as, yeah. as as we were talking about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got so the um, consorting part, the right? consorting, the greenwood. Green yeah. Um, I did a little note like, about the greenwood. I was thinking what, about what was that term you used for that again? The locus. Oh, locus amoenus. Yeah. The the uh, the beautiful place, right? Yeah. And often, you know, two woods themselves are metaphors for disordered thinking, okay. right? Yeah. And then, and for an ideas without methodology, and kind of a labyrinth of sorts. And like you go out in the woods, like the city is one thing, right? Like most of the time, plays take place in palaces and in well, those in, cities and yeah. agora yeah, and so yeah, on, right? Yeah, they're, they're and, set in those right. Places, and, yeah. and and this one is you civilized know, too, places. Yeah, civilized places, and then the wild places are are they're more of a pan's labyrinth type yeah. of thing, right? So. Yeah. And, and the confusion that can exist in a hunt or out in the woods is symbolic of that sort of disordered thinking. I think that it's being set up for yeah. our, our um, exposition of Hippolytus. Yeah. So we got that going um, on. So then, yeah, so then... Oh, well, what does she say? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, oh. I don't begrudge him these things. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. reached the land of beasts with swift dogs, so he's yeah. a hunter, yeah. right? Yeah. Like Artemis yeah. is. Having... Come upon more than mortal companionship. And, yeah, and That's interesting. Divine companionship. Right. So, because that association is unnatural. Yes. Right? Because gods and mortals aren't really supposed to be friends. Yes. And I mean, we see that in Theogony. We see this, and and, and again, and, in some of the Homeric hymns, this yeah. separation, separation of the gods and And when mortals. it does happen, it's really something cool, like Athena's relationship with Odysseus, for example. Yes. If that was the norm, you know, then, oh, you know... What a what a wild world it would have been, right? Yeah. But you know, even in the Iliad, for example, you know, um, Zeus is chastising Athena because he says, "Well, look at your look at look at Aphrodite. She's down there, you know, um, protecting her son. Why don't you do something, right?" And Athena's like, "Oh, I guess I." And so she goes down and she has to help support Diomedes because yeah. it's part of this thing. Like you don't really want to do it. Like I'd rather stay at home and eat Cheetos all day in my underwear, right? As a god, but no, occasionally they gotta. <laughs> come down to earth and they got to get things done right that's the way that this system is yeah. being set up right so and and i like the way she says like having come upon a more than mortal companionship it's like you come upon something right even the words of it to say like if i make something or i find something or i create something it's different even than this the is same. more of a finding i come thing. upon it yeah. is i came upon it right yeah. so she comes upon it having come upon a more than mortal it's an unnatural association right mm -hmm. and and it says i don't and, and i i want to ask you how you take this next part but it says i don't begrudge them these things why should i right there's that okay so question, how, so how right? do i interpret that yeah like what um so she says i don't begrudge him these things them these um, things I, I think what she's talking there, I like on on the surface, um, on an initial light reading. Oh mm -hmm. yeah, okay. So she doesn't begrudge him wanting to go off and hunt. Um, but I I don't know. I I want to read it, mm -hmm. and I could be I could be wrong here. But mm -hmm. I would read this as that companionship. That mm -hmm. that's what she doesn't begrudge him about finding that f finding that connection between the mortal and, and divine. And it's mm -hmm. really unusual to yeah. see a God sensitive to that, that yeah. she says, I don't begrudge him hanging out with a God. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's, it's, it's like the, the crime is about the dishonor. Yes. Not the fact that he 
on occasion associates consorts, yeah. tongue in cheek, with Artemis. But the irony, of course, is that he can't be assorting, or sorry, consorting with Artemis yeah. if he is paying his due, mm-hmm. his his dues to his correct dues to Aphrodite, either, right? Yeah. Like so, so. But but yes, her issue is not that he's hanging out with another goddess. Got it. Yep. She's like, okay, I get it. You want to hang out with the goddess? One minor point. Yeah, okay. Correct me. <laughs> That's good. I like that because it talk, talks about that, that there's a difference between what she perceives as the fundamental dishonor, right, yeah. to her, Tibai. Uh, it also tells us about the unnatural relationship between a mortal and a goddess in this particular case. And then she does something that you wouldn't expect, right, because if you... If you put it in that manner, you, you would expect her to say, um, uh, that's wrong, I'm going to do something about that too. Right? Yeah. But when she says, I don't begrudge them, Artemis, so Ar- and Hippolytus, these things, and then she says, why should I? Right? Now, in order to begrudge someone, you need to be envious of someone. And She's had her consorting with, with mortals as well. The possession or enjoyment of something. So in order to generate envy, that means that that person that you envy has something that you like, want, or can't experience, right? That means that Apollotus is in a position, that places Apollotus in a position of power above Aphrodite. If she vocalizes or acknowledges envy, that means he is more powerful to her because he has a, a relationship, right, with a goddess that, like Artemis, right, that is mm-hmm. envious, right? And envy is a, is one of those weird emotions, it's right? It's a power thing. Yeah. It's a power thing, right? Yeah. It's I'm like I'm envious of that person, but people don't walk. Well, sometimes they do. They say, "Oh, I envy that. I envy that guy." I envy your vacation. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's a nice car. I wish I had that. I don't know. We we get these ideas kind of confused, but envy is really speaks from a point of view of disparity. Like you do not have something that somebody else has. That someone and else you has. Want and you it. want it or you want to feel it or express it yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. So it's a possession or enjoyment of something. So she yeah. does not envy. Yeah. At least she does not vocalize. So she doesn't say it. Yeah. So maybe she is envious, maybe she I would isn't. say she is. Yeah. I'm inclined to knowing how the gods yeah. operate, I'm inclined to say she probably is envious. Absolutely. Yeah, but she's not gonna say it. Be, well, she's already yeah. said Artemis, the daughter of, you know, she... Yeah, but she's not going to say, I'm envious, that. Yeah. right? Yeah. But what, what she will do, what comes immediately after that, says, but I will, and that's punish. why people are like, yeah, they're like, what? Well, then, if she's not envious, why? But I will punish Hippolytus to stay for the wrongs he has done me. Yeah. Right? And and that word, punish, and this is kind of related to the other research that I'm doing with comic book stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, Atomazzo, right, is, mm-hmm. the, you can, the word timai is right in. Punish. Ah, right. So really, punishment it's a is taking away of Tima. It's a, yeah, it's about the dishonor, right? It, punish, uh, punishment is being a way of sort of establishing or protecting one's worth, right? One's honor. It's linked to Tima, right? So you punish because your honor has been infringed upon. Atimatso, right? Mm-hmm. Not yet, right? So I'm going to punish that person for what they've done, right? This dishonor, right? This Tima, right? So and, and she will, and the gods do it constantly, right? They need to reinforce what the proper behavior is. Step over line, get hit, right? Yeah. It's not about rewards; it's about punishment. Yeah. Right. That's the model right, that's being expressed there. So, 
you get that idea. So, yeah, so, for what he has done me. For what he has done me. Right? And then that brings us to the end of that passage. Pretty much. Yeah. All right. And we've, we've gone a little bit longer than we usually try to go, but hopefully... Um, Hopefully our readers have a pretty good idea now of some of the complexities and difficulties with dealing, or not our readers, our listeners, with the complexities. Um, of the goddess of, of sexuality. Yes. The Greek goddess of sexuality, so, Aphrodite, the Roman Venus. Yep, right? very ancient goddess. Um, and If we would have waited till the third week in June, we would have been able to time this to the Aphrodisia Festival, right? Oh. Uh, Aphrodite Pandemos, but... We're doing it now. Yes, and that May also 25th. that also reminded me okay. that um, I got all excited because I misread this on the website. Or did you misread it? <laughs> the transit. Um, so Venus transits the sun, crosses yes. the sun, and so we just recently had the transit of Mercury. Mercury, and then I was like, "Oh, there's a transit of Venus." Oh, great! In December, no, it's December twenty one seventeen, not. 2017. Ah. So, um, <laughs> gonna wait a while for that. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna be around. It, no. o- it only happens every uh, about every hundred years, and then it occurs in pairs. Like it happens twice close together. Yeah. Um, but I was momentarily excited, and then I'm like, no, it's 2117, not 2017. So if anybody is listening to this in 2117, December 11th is the date of mark on your calendar. Oh god. <laughs> anyway, out there in the digital. A bin bucket. All right. So, do we have any listener mail this week? Um, you said that you. I heard got a message. I uh, got a message from a um, listener uh, that uh, wanted to um, add his two cents into the discussion on Mercury. Hermes. Uh, yeah, yeah, on Hermes, uh, and he said uh, one for him. Alchemy is a science because we uh, chalked it into, you know. It was until uh-huh. modern times. It was considered science, and right. it's a fascinating so, area of study. And okay. I fully endorse um, the academic study of alchemy. Right on. I'm going to put it that way. Right on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and what was the other thing again? I don't remember. Oh, um, and and that Hermes was a giant mega baby. Yes. 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 Something that, like that. Uh, yeah. That that works well. Mega baby. Um, I want to give a shout out to a great podcast that I've been listening Insert to. Insert shout out noise here. Yes. <laughs> um, that I've been listening to and I've got Darren listening to now called The Endless Knot. And um, it's done by a classicist and I think a linguist. I'm not entirely sure of, uh, of the co-host background. Um, but please check them out. If you enjoy our podcast, you will probably enjoy theirs. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that for sure. Put a link in the show Um, notes. Do a great podcast, fascinating podcast. They're doing colors right now. Yes. Um, They did white, they did red. red They've done some stuff on cocktails there. I'm wearing a red shirt in honor of that podcast, and I'm drinking... Um, a cocktail uh, of uh, wild turkey. Well, that's not exactly. <laughs> I don't think that's no. a cocktail. No. <laughs> but anyway, no. um, do check their their podcast out. Um, I I enjoy it immensely, and I think some of you will as well. Um, if you're interested in stories, in just hearing stories about myths, there's a podcast called Myth and Legends. Um, I've been listening to some of their Arthurian stuff, and. Um, you may want to check, check out. them out just just to listen to stories. 
have somebody read your stories, basically. Um, so, yeah, send us some tweets. We know that we've been kind of quiet the past couple of weeks, but hopefully we're back on schedule now. Next week, we're skipping over Earth. And going to Mars. We're going to go straight planet. to the red planet. Yes. And actually... I was kind of wondering, what are we going to do for Mars? Because there's not... The, the, Mars, the Romans are big on Mars. The Greeks, not so much big on Aries. There's not a lot about him. But then I learned from my friend Pliny the Elder uh-huh. that um, one of the names for the planet Mars mm. by the Greeks was Hercules or Heracles. Uh. So we might have to go that way with our mythological discussion. I don't yeah, know. We'll have, to, we'll have to discuss it and yeah. see see what we want to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we hope that you will join us then. In the meantime, join us on Twitter. I am at Innes Allison. And I am at Darren Sundstrom. And when we get to Mars, it's going to be cool because we're talking about the connection too. Yeah. Because, you know, um, we have... Mars and Venus. Mars and Venus. So we yes, move from Venus and to Aries Mars. and Aphrodite. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. All right. So, enjoy your week. And we'll see Ta-ta you. Ta-ta for now. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Thank you.